scriptures to show that the whole thing, the whole Bible, is really about Christ and His bride, and uh, a little is given about the millennium, a little is given about the great white throne judgment, even less about it than the millennium, Uh, but the rest of it is for now, and it's for us to understand what it is like to be a bride of the right kind and to prepare to be a bride of Christ. And uh, I'll go to Matthew 22 to start off with this this evening, uh, because here is a parable which Christ delivered, which gives us some insight. Now, in the chapter before, up in chapter 21, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's uh, he said that, uh, oh, up in verse 31, that the publicans and the harlots will go into the kingdom of God before you. That's a pretty severe judgment uh, that Christ made on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, they were all about the Old Testament Scriptures and their own uh, doctrines and traditions, as we saw last night. So, he's saying that the kingdom of God would not at this time be offered to them. And in fact, he tells them over another chapter or two over that, uh, that he'll have nothing more to do with them into chapter 23 until they accept the ministry that he was going to send. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those leaders of the Jew, including the modern ones, are out of it. They're not being called. They will not be in the kingdom of God as it's set up here on the earth. Uh, They'll have their chance in the great white throne judgment. So with that background of who he's talking to, verse 45 says, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables they perceived that he spoke about them. So then they tried to lay hands on him, and uh, but they were afraid because the multitude thought he was a prophet. So they were, you know, they wanted to kill him, but they were afraid the multitude would turn on them. So they were stymied. But now he gives this next parable with them in mind. There's no break here, really. And Emmanuel answered and spoke to them, these that had just said, you, you've been talking to us all this time, by parables and said. Now, so he's going to talk about the kingdom of God now to these people who were irate against him. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Now, in the context of everything we've been reading and studying up to this point, Uh, he uses this analogy which fits perfectly with everything else we've been reading. The Father in heaven is making a marriage for Christ and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. So he says, I'm talking to you Pharisees here now. And he said, anybody could be bidden. Uh, I mean, you're Israelites, uh, so you were eligible to come, but you wouldn't. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Did he send the prophets of old and warn Israel and warn Judah time and time again, rising early to let them know uh, that they needed to repent and change and grow and overcome and follow him? And they always ignored it. They always stoned and killed the prophets. So he kept sending more. And now here at the end, he's going to send some more. Saying, tell them which are bidden, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatling are killed, and all things are ready, come to the marriage. But they made light of it, went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. So businessmen, farmers, uh, general public uh, of the population of Israel. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. Well, that's what they did to the prophets. He says in Zechariah 1, Don't you do as your fathers did and kill the prophets. Well, Zechariah 1 is talking about the end-time prophets. 
and how that they will try to disallow them and kill them, whether physically or whether it's uh, uh, character assassination, it's all the same. Anyway, they've always slain the prophets. But when the king heard thereof, he was angry. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Read uh, Ezekiel 4 through 7. Uh, Read many, many other prophecies about what's about to happen to this country. Read Hosea, for instance, Joel. uh, Because we will not follow God, and God is going to destroy the nation. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. So what are you going to do? Physical Israel was offered a chance. They, They turned it down. Everybody he sent, they killed or whatever. So he said, All right, servants, go into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now he sent the early New Testament apostles out to do this very thing, and they preached among the people. Paul went to the Gentiles. Most of the others went to Israel. Paul to Israel some. And converts were made and were prepared for the wedding. Now they're in the ground waiting for the first resurrection. But part of the scene of what happens in order to get a bride for Christ. So they did both bad and good. Uh, Paul was a bad one, okay? He was a murderer. He had been killing true Christians before God called him. So he was called. So all kinds of people were called. Uh, from one end of the societal spectrum <clears throat> to, the, to the other end of it. And everything in between, God has offered a call during that day and here at the end as well. Doesn't mean if you're bad when you're called, you stay that way, <laughs> you know. We're called to repentance and change whatever needs to be changed because we'll see here in a moment that the wedding was furnished with guests. I went through this guest thing. I went through this whole topic a great deal, and I don't have time to do it tonight, in that uh, series entitled, How Exclusive is the Church? And showed that these guests here, uh, in the analogy, are actually speaking of the 144,000 because the... the, the, uh, multitude that's mentioned after the 144,000 is great white throne judgment. So, uh, normally you only have one husband and one wife, but here we have 144,000 we're dealing with, so he uses the term guests. Uh, But notice, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. We'll see some scriptures in a little bit about that. So there were guests there, both bad and good, but they had to do something. They had to put on a wedding garment. And if you don't put on the wedding garment, you can't be part of the wedding. And he said to him, Friend, how came you in here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Uh, That reminds me, I won't go to the the story of the ten virgins, but uh, they all went to sleep. And then when the cry was made at midnight, some woke up and they had oil in their lamps and the others did not. And it was too late to get any. And uh, they couldn't go on into the wedding because they didn't have oil. Here it's pictured as a wedding garment. And he was speechless. He didn't know what to say. Well, I thought I was okay. Take me as I am, Lord. Uh, oh, no, not quite. You've got to get ready. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, For many are called, but few are chosen. And we look at what God has done here at this end time. Through Herbert Armstrong, many were called. And now, with the blow up of the church, few are being chosen. And it tells us here 
that we better have a wedding garment on when this comes about, otherwise we'll be rejected. Or if you don't have oil in your lamp, you'll be rejected. So he's looking for people who are prepared and ready to be a bride. I want to go back to another prophecy. We may not have actually looked at this entirely as a prophecy, but it says it is in Proverbs 31. I'll start at the top on this one because we usually go down to verse 10 and, and don't read chapter 31, all of it. It says, These are the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. So here's a king, and here's what his mother said, and it is a prophecy. Lemuel means belonging to God. We, who have repented and been baptized and committed ourselves, belong to God. Okay? We are to be what? Kings and priests in the kingdom of God with Christ for a thousand years. So this is a prophecy, and it could be a prophecy about leadership, but it could be a prophecy about all of us because we are called to be the leadership as kings and priests in the world tomorrow. So this is written to all of us, okay? Not just to one man. The mother, of course, we understand as Galatians 6 explains, the church is the mother of us all. So this is a prophecy from the mother to all those who belong to God. <clears throat> what, my son, and what, the son of my womb, and what, the son of my vows? She asked her son some questions. And it's going to be, what about this? What about that? What about something else? In other words, what she's asking is not necessarily here. It's just that she's questioning her son. What, my son? In other words, it opens the door for a discussion. What, what you got to say, my son, <laughs> about what I'm about to say? So then he says, Give not your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O belonging to God. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So she says, You belong to God. Don't blow it all on women and booze. Paraphrasing it and boiling it down. Uh, that's what frequently leaders do. We have uh, a lot of going on in our country right now. Almost everybody it seems, who's in a position of any kind of influence is being accused of all kinds of uh, improper uh, things that they've done with women. And it's not just booze anymore. Now, any kind of drunkenness, anything that takes your judgment and all away, such as drugs, that's huge now. You've got lots of people that are snorting cocaine and various things. So she said... Don't be doing the things that destroy kings. So we need to take that upon ourselves and be saying, look, we better be careful not to do anything that would pervert judgment, that would make us uh, incompetent or unqualified as kings and priests. So it doesn't mean that a king can't have a wife doesn't mean a king can't drink. But she's saying, don't go so far in this area that you lose it, if you will. If you will. Because he says on down here in verse 6, Give strong drink to him that is ready to perish, and wine to those that be of heavy hearts. Now, why did she say this? Don't waste your time and energy on women and booze. Uh, end of verse 5, it says that if you do this, you might pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So she said, you need to be sober, you need to be sure you're focused, and you're taking care of the afflicted, the poor, the needy, and so on. Well, isn't that our job? I look out here and I see poor, afflicted, and needy. 
we need more of God's Spirit. We need more white garments. We need more uh, of obedience. So what do we do? We sit and we listen to God's words. And that helps us to alleviate our spiritual poverty and need and affliction. Now, it can be physical as well, but is it which is more important, taking of the care of the widow physically or spiritually? No-brainer. Both, yes, need to be done, but the spiritual is by far the most important. So, you can read both physical and spiritual here. But there are times when strong drink and wine is needed when things roil up and you're uptight and everything's going wrong and, and you need something, it can give you some temporary relief. Now, that doesn't mean you hide in a bottle uh, every day, <laughs> you know. That is misusing because that perverts judgment and you're drunk all the time. That, that won't work. But he says it's there for use when it is needed temporarily to help alleviate some stress or whatever. And that's what it says, that he might forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. There are times when you're really stressed out, uh, a drink or two can kind of relieve you and make you feel better. So, it does have that use. Open your mouth for the dumb and the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. If we belong to God, we need to be serving God and being a slave of Christ, as we're told in the New Testament. But some are appointed to destruction. They're, they're not appointed to be called, to be saved. And uh, reach out to them. Open your mouth for the dumb. How are they appointed to destruction? There might be a people who are converted who by the way they are living, by what they are doing, by what Satan is having his way with them, uh, they have an appointment with destruction. So they need help. Uh, we are supposed to be preparing the bride. And we are to be part of the bride. Well, we need help. We need all that we can get out of this book to help us get ready to be the bride of Christ. Now, you've seen brides, most of you here, well, the girls anyway, have been one, and how you fuss over this and fuss over that and want all the details right and the dress just right and the invitations just right and the refreshments just right, on and on and on it goes. And it becomes a huge production for, for however long. And then when it's over, you say, I'm too tired for a honeymoon. Why did we do all that? Uh, but whatever. So, we are to help those who have an appointment with destruction. It says, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. That's what we need to do. If you're a king, a leader, a priest... We're going to have those in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, that we'll be pleading with them, pleading to Christ, and they will be pleading to us because they'll worship us at that point if we're the bride of Christ. And we want to be able to use righteous judgment. Well, that's what we need to be learning right now so that we can be proper kings and priests. Uh, I pray for you that God will give you what you need and I pray pretty diligently that He will show me and hear what it is that we need right now to help get us where we need to be. And that's what it says to do. So whatever leadership you have currently or in the future, this is the way it's to be. Now, the prophecy continues here. So he's telling us, be proper leaders, be what you ought to be, and then he talks about a bride. Who can find a virtuous woman? Look around in society today. How many really good, upstanding, proper women could you find 
they're going to fit what he's about to say. Because he's going to define what one is like. And we need to be one, each and every one of us. And we need to be that as a group, as we shall see. Who can find one? For her price is far above rubies. Rubies are about as valuable a stone as you can get now. They're up there probably a little higher than sapphires and, eh, not always, but even emeralds. If they're really, really good emeralds, uh, they might be a little more pricey than rubies. But at any rate, a very, very precious stone is a ruby. And if you can find a virtuous woman, throw all your rubies away and take her, because she is something special. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. Now, you can look at this from a physical standpoint as to how a woman should be with her physical husband, because it's a direct type, remember, of Christ and the church. Or you can look at this and say, Could Christ safely trust in me as a potential member of his marriage? Safely trust. Not worry about us. Not be a little concerned. I don't know. But safely trust. Feel fully confident in us. That we will be where we need to be, doing what we need to be, when we need to be doing it. So that he shall have no need of spoil. He doesn't worry about anything because he knows she'll be there to take care of it. Wife sees some food beginning, look like it could spoil. Uh Uh-oh, that looks like that's going to spoil. I think I'll toss it out. Well, that costs money. That takes away from your overall good. No, uh, she'll put it in the freezer, or she'll can it, or she'll cook it up and eat it right away, or find a way to keep it from spoiling, if at all possible. I mean, yeah, spoil does happen, but the point is here, She's going to be taking care of things so that he doesn't have to worry about everything going bad. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's all about attitude there. She has a mind that is on a positive, good side, and she will constantly be doing good for him. She won't work against him. She won't stab him in the back. She won't put him down. She will be busy, busy, busy trying to do good for him and not let any evil come to him if she can help it. She's there as a support, a strength. They say behind every successful man is a strong woman. And uh, that's probably not too far off. is isn't always the case, but I think in general, if a man is supported and strengthened by a solid, positive, helpful woman behind him, uh, that frees him to be more successful at whatever he's doing because he has that kind of support. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. So uh, she's, she's making things. She's preparing. She's taking care of what needs done. Now, today, women go out into the workforce and then they go to Walmart and spend the money they made at work buying Chinese clothes or whatever. Now, we just read last night, a couple of scriptures, I think, about a woman should be a keeper at home. That was God's original intent. She shouldn't be out in the workforce. I mean, sometimes it's Sometimes it's almost impossible not to be in our society, but it isn't what God intended. So sometimes we have to deal with things the way they are uh, and do the best we can under the circumstances. Uh, But we'll see as we go down here that everything she's doing in this section is basically home-based. She can be doing cottage industries from home. And that's what we'll see here. She's, she works willingly. This indicates probably making clothes in verse 13. 
she is like the merchant's ships. She brings her food from afar. So she <coughs> excuse me, imports what she needs. May grow a lot of it, but she is capable of making sure that the family has what it needs, even if she has to reach out somewhere else to get it, which is sometimes the case. She rises also while it is yet night and gives food to her household and a portion to her maidens. Uh, sounds like this is a pretty successful woman, and she even has some servants, some employees or maidens uh, as a result because she is successful and therefore can afford to have them. So she's not lazy. Uh, she doesn't sit and watch soap operas all day long. She's, she's busy. She gets up even before dawn to take care of her family, whatever is needed. They say a woman's work is never done. And that, that, a lot of truth to that. Uh, you may go to bed tired and, and it's still not all finished. There's still stuff, stuff that needs done that will be there in the morning. Still needs done. And uh, we can't be lazy. Now, what about being zealous? Doing everything we can with our might? Being passionate about being the bride of Christ? We need to rise up early. What did he say about the prophets? Already quoted. They rose up early to tell you what you need to be doing. Uh, they, they were tireless in doing so. So a proper uh, wife will be taking care of those things and not lazy at all. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands and plants a vineyard. So that's a real estate deal for you. <laughs> Uh, she's based at home. She's working from home. But she says, well, my husband's doing this. He's doing that. But I think we need a vineyard. So she goes and buys one. So she, she isn't just washing dishes and changing diapers all day. God gives a quite a bit of leeway here that a woman can reach out from the home and do other things, but that's her base. She's not out working somewhere else eight hours a day, but working from home, taking care of her family, and yet she can reach out and do a real estate deal, for instance. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. I don't think that means aerobics and, and exercises necessarily, but uh, she's working, she's busy, and keeps her, that keeps her in shape. Not that it's wrong to exercise, don't get me wrong. Crunches are so much fun anyway, but uh, she can be busy. So she pushes herself. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. Now, if we are working hard at doing what God wants us to do so that we can be qualified as His bride, there is a point when we recognize that what we're doing is good. It's not wrong to recognize that you are overcoming and growing. Paul did it at the end of his life. He said, hey, I've run the course. I've fought a good fight. I know my reward is sure. So he was making an assessment that what he had done was good. Now, was he perfect? No. But... It isn't wrong for us to recognize when we are doing good. We're laying up treasure in heaven. And it isn't wrong to recognize that because it's encouraging. On the other hand, if we brag to others about it, that how good we're doing, then it removes the reward because we have our reward. That is the adulation of somebody else that we're bragging about how good we're doing. Because then we're sounding pharisaical, and Christ removed the reward. Remember, we just read that. I won't have anything to do with you. I'm done. You've had your reward. You've got the approbation of men. That's it. No, keep it quiet. Recognize when you do good, and God will chalk it up as righteousness. 
Her candle goes not out by night. Well, we already read she gets up while it's dark, and then she has a candle at night so she can keep on. Becoming what Christ wants us to become is a 24-7 operation. The reason we sleep and rest is so that we in our waking hours can have the energy to follow His way and do what He wants done and get ourselves ready. Now this, this gal's pretty busy. Uh, and it's, it's speaking of a church. that We need as a group, not just as individuals, to be doing what it says here. She lays her hand to the spindle and her hands hold the distaff. She stretches out her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. So she takes care of her family, but she also has outreach to others who have needs. And uh, we have to do those things both individually and as a church. I don't know how you much reach out right now, uh, but that will happen soon. We're told not to go to the world right now. Don't reach out to them. We can only go to the church. But until we're able to, as he told Ezekiel, stay in your house, I'm going to shut your mouth until it's time to speak. And then Ezekiel could speak. So there will come a time when God begins to do signs and wonders, and they will cause people to take notice and then you can beckon to the poor and needy out there throughout the church, wherever they may be scattered, that come and we will help. Come and have wine and milk without money, Isaiah 55. So she will reach out to the poor and needy as she is capable when the time comes. Not much can be done right now. We tried years ago reaching out with a Passover paper and a foot washing and symbols paper. Uh, I sent out a marriage paper. Uh, various things. No response. Nothing. They're right there on the website for anybody in the world to see. Nothing. Or not much anyway. Not until God moves. And you don't even, you don't even know who the poor and needy are right now. Virtually everybody. But the call will go out to 100% of those who were called. And only 10% will respond. And then they will come. And they need to be fed and taken care of. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. She makes probably better clothes than the Chinese. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So... Uh, the implication there is that because of her industry and what she is, that helped him to be a leader among the men as well because he had so much good support. And Christ, of course, in type here, is the main one in the gate. And if we are supporting his work and what he's doing and preparing to be the bride behind him like this, he needs that support in the millennium. He'll need all 144,000 to help teach and help the poor and the needy in the millennium. And then when the great white throne judgment comes, billions and billions of people are going to need our help. So, it's all about the virtuous woman who helps her husband. She makes fine linen and sells it so she can have a cottage industry of selling things she makes at home and delivered girdles to the merchant. She's not the merchant, but she delivers things to the merchant to be sold. So she's the wholesaler here. Strength and honor are her clothing. So she's making clothing here, and we could say, well, that's just physical. But now he's saying, strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. So what she is doing now will give her joy and pleasure and rejoicing in the future, not just in the present. So as we prepare to be Christ's bride, the real payoff is still ahead of us, right? It's not right now, it's ahead of us. So, 
you don't have to talk about physical clothing here. When it talks about the white garments of righteousness, it's talking about righteous behavior, not clothes. So he says here, uh, this is just an analogy. The clothes she makes on a spiritual level uh, are strength and honor. She opens her mouth with wisdom. And in her tongue is the law of kindness. So she has learned wisdom. All the previous 30 chapters of Proverbs impart wisdom. So does the rest of God's Word impart wisdom. So this lady, this church, has learned the Word of God and has learned wisdom and how to use it and how to help people with it. That's what we need to be doing. So she has the law of kindness. What does kindness include? Peace, love, unity. Uh, she's kind. Her attitude is kind. Not mean, not nasty, not uh, backward, not hurtful, but kind. Christ wants a kind bride. One who will look out and see millions, hundred million people in the millennium that have been through an awful lot. And she doesn't kick them around and say, straighten up now. She's kind. She's helpful. Wants to do what she can. We could grade ourselves on the scale of kindness. She looks well to the ways of her household and eats not the bread of idleness. She's busy. Well, we need to be busy getting our garments ready because we don't have enough strength and honor. We don't have enough wisdom and we don't have enough kindness. Uh, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. A woman physically that does these things is going to be respected by her children and her husband will tell her what a wonderful woman she is. Christ will do the same thing for His bride. If, if she's taking care of the children properly, the church, the bride, uh, in that sense, the mother, uh, they will appreciate what mom's doing for them. And Christ will also praise her for what she's doing. Then it says, Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Now, we can find that Christ is seeking the fairest virgin out of all the splinters of the church so that he might use her as the basis for calling together the 10% remnant here at the end. And he says the one he picks is going to be the one that excels the rest of them. Now there's a scary thought. We'd like to be the candidate to be that, wouldn't we? A virtuous woman that Christ would say, I want to use you to help my people. What greater honor and privilege could we have? But there's work to do to be sure that these qualities above here have been accomplished. Uh, I marked chapter 12, verse 4 here. I didn't look that one up, but I'm going to whip back there right quick and see what it says. Um... A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that makes a shamed is a rottenness in his bones. So, this virtuous woman then is a crown, but if she does him evil instead of good, then she's a rottenness to his bones. So, he's looking for one that excels them all. And we could do that as well as anybody else, couldn't we? Somebody's got to excel. Why not? Us. Why don't we go there? Why don't we be what he's looking for? Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that fears the eternal, she shall be praised. We can be in favor with ourselves. We can think we're a beautiful, glorious church. Look at all the numbers, how many people we have, and look how much money we have, and what a wonderful gospel we're putting out there, some of them say. But that's all vanity. 
It's all ego. What's in the heart? What's in the mind? That's what counts. Fear God. Keep His commandments. That's the beginning of wisdom. And it says up here, she's wise. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. So let what she does praise her. She doesn't pat herself on the back and praise herself, but her works are out there to be seen. And God will give her the fruit of her hands. If we are doing what we need to be doing, God says He's going to reward that. He'll take care of us. So this is a prophecy of Christ and the church, like the rest of them. Now, he tells us in Micah 4 that we are travail, are to travail and be delivered after we come out into a wilderness place. Delivered of a child. And then I'm not turning there. We've read it several times recently. But in Isaiah 7, it says that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth Emmanuel. So, the background of this virtuous woman here is that she is to become a chaste virgin, as we saw defined last night, is someone who has been baptized, who has repented of the past, has a new life, and spiritually is considered a chaste virgin. And even immoral Corinthians could become that. So it isn't a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. So he tells us that that someone who has achieved that status... As a spiritual virgin, someone, people who are in God's church, in the truth, will bring forth Christ. Well, we're supposed to be bringing Him forth in our thoughts and conduct. And He also says He will deliver us. So the, the delivery of a child is something that we strain to do as a, in the type of being a mother, uh, to produce Christ and His character in our lives. And at the same time, He says, we are delivered of Him. So He helps us bring Him into our lives. We both deliver and are delivered. And we have to be in the truth and have become a chaste virgin no matter what we were before. Remember He said He bid bad and good guests. didn't matter. Uh, Christ can fix them all. He can fix them all. So let's pick it up then. Uh, Let's start in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. We've read, we've gone over this one many, many times. He says there in chapter 51 that of all her sons she's brought up, nobody can lead her and get her where she wants to be and needs to be, but he says he'll take the cup of trembling out of our hands if we will serve him and put it in the hands of those who have persecuted us and misused us. That's down in verse 22 of 51. And he says, I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, verse 23, which have said to your soul, bow down that we may go over, and you have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Now, I've been criticized by some for kind of laying down and letting these people walk over us. And yet Christ said that that would happen. He said it would happen, that they could walk on us. But he says, don't stay there. Read on in chapter 52. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Power, strength. Wake up and be strong. He says that he'll give us a horn of uh, iron and hooves of brass and a very productive mouth, a threshing machine in Isaiah 41 and Micah 4. Strength. So wake up and have strength. And put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. So, the garments of righteousness, strength and honor are her garments. We just read in Proverbs 31. Jerusalem, the holy city, speaking of the church. Read Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 for the umpteenth time, and you see that analogy there. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean, heathen spiritually. He's going to not let them come anymore. That means that they have come, 
and that they are here, and we're to rise up and in strength put on our garments and get rid of them. Let's read that. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit up, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. He says, you've sold yourselves for nothing. And we're considered as nothing by our enemies around us right here even. And you shall be redeemed without money. He's going to gather his people together without money. Come and have wine and oil. It says just three chapters over. Uh, So he's telling us that we're to go there. That that's what we're to become. And then he talks about how those who have ruled over us have made us to howl. Some of you howled at me. Well, we're going to put on our beautiful garments. And we're going to have strength. And God will take care of us. So, what does he say? Uh... Well, I'll get to that. Let's go back to 49 for a moment. Isaiah 49, verse 14. But Zion said, The Eternal has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt those emotions with all this turmoil over the last 32 years, and and even more recently? Man, it just seems like God's forsaken us and forgotten us. I've had that feeling. Uh, maybe we failed him. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget, yet will I not forget you. He says, a mother will forget her sucking child before I'll forget you. That's a pretty strong promise, really. There aren't many women that will forget their baby. Behold, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God never takes His eye off us. Zechariah 2, church at the end, gathering. He says, you're the apple of my eye. Whichever one it is, he says, That's, I got my eye on that apple and I'm not going to take it off it because that one's mine. Many have excelled, but you excel them all, he says. I'd like that to be us, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be nice to be us that he's talking to here? I think there's that possibility, brethren. Nobody else knows this story. You can't find anyone else that knows this story, but it's in here. It's in here. So if God showed us the story, he must expect us to live up to it. So don't think you're going to get off easy here. If God gave it to us, He expects us to do something with it, small and weak and as we are. He says back here a few chapters, you worm Jacob. He says there in Amos, I mean, uh, yeah, Amos 7, who will help Jacob for he is small? Repeats it, who will help Jacob for he is small? He says, I will. I'll, I'll set a plumb line on you. Who's that? It's Rebbebel. He's the plumb line. So, it's coming. He says, you're constantly before me. I don't take my eyes off you. And we got a woman with a young baby right here. She passes him around, lets somebody else hold him, but her eyes aren't very far off that baby. She got an eye, she got an eye on that baby all the time. Says, is that baby all right? That's the way a mother is. That's the way God is with us. Your children shall make haste. Your destroyers and they that made you waste shall go forth from you. Your children are coming, and those that have been against you are going away. Lift up your eyes round about, and behold, look around, he says. All these gather themselves together and come to you. As I live, he's swearing by his own life, says the Eternal, You shall surely clothe you with them. People are going to come to you, and you'll use them, wear them like a garment. That's close. Law of kindness. I mean, you put your clothes on, that's pretty personal. Says you're going to, these people are going to come, and it's going to be like putting your clothes on, close to your heart, close to your body. Take good care of them. 
You'll clothe them, them as with an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. As a bride dresses herself, you'll dress yourself with these people who are going to come to you. This will be a close, unified place. Habakkuk 2 says, I'll bring peace in this place. For your waste and your desolate places in the land of your destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants, and they that swallowed you up shall be far away. So, so many people are going to come that there's not enough room for them. I've thought that a long time. God gave us a piece of land here, but if you bring in seven, eight, ten, twelve thousand people, it ain't big enough. It's going to be too narrow. But those who were against us will be gone. They'll be far away. The children which you shall have after those you have lost, or after you have lost the others, shall say again in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. Zechariah 2 gives the answer. Seven villages. They'll be spread out from where the gathering place is. And Jerusalem will be seven villages with a wall of fire around them to take care of it. All these scriptures fit together. Then shall you say in your heart, Who has begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children and am desolate and captive and going about? Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, barren, nobody around, diminished, decimated. Where have these been? We'll look around and say, Man, where did all these people come from? Where have they been? And there they are. And they're saying, We need more space. What are you going to do? And we'll have the law of kindness and say, Well, we'll work on that. We'll get that fixed for you. All right, let's go to uh, Isaiah 54. See some of the things he's going to do to us. We've got the Passover here in chapter 53. And he says in 54 then, Seeing, O barren, you that did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. We, didn't, we don't have a lot of prospective members, do we? Were we prevailing with child? No. We don't know where we're going to find any more people. And then we have... Seven added this Passover. That's, that's phenomenal. That's between a 70-75% increase in a week. Less than a week. Hey, that ain't bad. It's just a start. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife or the wife that is to be. There's more people out there that are in other groups. And they got a lot more than we do. But that's going to change. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitation. Spare not. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you shall break forth on the right and on the left, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. These Gentile Mormons around us are going away, and their towns will be inhabited by those who come to build a temple in Jerusalem. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed. We still kind of are, aren't we? But not then. Neither be confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Christ wasn't around. We were in the position of being a widow. He was there, had his face turned from us. How do you, don't you feel kind of like a widow if your husband says, I don't want anything to do with you. I can't stand to look at you. Makes you feel kind of like a... Don't have a husband when he's like that. Or if he got like that. But notice verse 5. For your maker is your husband. Christ created us all. And without him was nothing created. So Christ himself is to be our husband. Fits everything else we've been reading. The Eternal of Hosts is His name, and your Redeemer, Savior, Redeemer, all those words we use for Christ, 
the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. God of the whole earth, and we're his wife. That's kind of neat. For I, for the Eternal has called you as a forsaken woman and grieved in spirit, which is where we have been, and a wife of youth when you were refused, says your God. Christ refused us. He turned away from us. For a small moment have I forsaken you, and we have been forsaken and felt forsaken. Right? But with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Eternal, your Redeemer. So He has everlasting kindness. Is it any wonder we read that she has the law of kindness? Because He wants a bride that's like Him. He's kind. He wants her to be kind. All fits together. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. And I swore they'd no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. And the mountains will depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. <coughs> Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Eternal that has mercy on you. And he goes on down and says he's, he's going to give us jewels and agates and all kinds of beautiful stones. And we'll have peace and he'll give us his righteousness, not our own. And any who come against us, he will destroy them in verse 16. And no weapon that comes against us can touch us. This is the heritage of the servants of the Eternal and their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. Then he makes a call. When he says that this is going to happen, then he says, Everyone that thirsts, come to the waters and have milk and honey without money. Uh, and on and on about how they'll be blessed. So, his bride is going to be increased. More are going to be invited in to be part of the bride. Uh Let's see, chapter 61 now. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the eternal. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Our interest, our uh, zeal, our energy and joy is in God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the eternal God will cause righteousness and praise <clears throat> to spring forth before all the nations. The witnesses are going to go around the world and preach to all the nations about those who are adorned in righteousness who are at Mount Zion and are being blessed by their bridegroom who is there with them, God with us, Emmanuel. Now notice he tells us to put on our uh, wedding garments, the garments of righteousness. But here he adds to that he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. So it's a two-part deal. We can only struggle so much to overcome, to grow, to have strength and honor and wisdom and the things that were there in Proverbs 31 in that prophecy. So then we have to recognize, I can't do this on my own. I'm a weak, physical human being. I need help. So we go to Him, and He helps dress us. He puts the clothing on us. For without Him, we can do nothing. It's Christ, what Christ said of Himself. Even as a potential bridegroom, He says, I can't do anything on myself. I need the Father in heaven, because at this point I'm human. Now He's God again, 
and he can do something. He can help us. So he says he will. So don't think that by your works alone, or by your effort alone, you can put on true righteousness. Because most of it will be self-righteousness. So call on almighty, powerful, majestic God to give you the strength and the power and the ability, the capacity to grow and overcome because without His help, we won't get there. But didn't He tell us there in chapter uh, 54 that we just read what He's going to do for us, how He'll bring those and He'll turn His face back to us and bless us like you would a bride. So He's willing to do that. And He says there in Jeremiah, when we turn with our heart, then He will be found of us and He will then answer our prayers. So we can only go so far and then He has to answer. And He has the bigger role than we do. He has more strength. He has more power. He has more knowledge, more wisdom. He has more of everything. And we're pretty puny. So we can only go so far, and then what do you do? You cry out. You cry out, Help me, God. You're my husband. Help me. Give me what I need to be the wife you need. And a proper leader, as a husband on earth, will do everything he can to help his wife. Didn't we read about how he is to be tender to her, to be kind to her, to be supportive of her, to help her and treat her like he would his own flesh? Christ will do that with us. Because if he instructs us to be that way with our physical wives, he's going to be that way with his bride-to-be. So that help is there. We just have to be loyal and faithful and call on it. And we'll receive it. And this thing will happen. It says the waters of Noah to him. How big is it to you? Big as a baptismal committal vow? How big is it? Let's pick up one more here while we're handy. It's 62, verse 5. Well, it's just continuing, really. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. So not only am I going to help you, I'm not going to rest, he says, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. He says, I will not rest, I will not stop until this thing happens and your light is burning bright. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the eternal shall name. Now we're told we'll get the new name when we are part of the kingdom of God after we've overcome. But I think that this is dual. We're going to have a new name out there from all the nations of the world. Instead of being called that cult, we'll have a new name. Those are the people of God with the bright light there in Zion. It's just a a type of the crowns and the light that would be later on. But we're supposed to be a light here on this earth. And we will have a new name, even here. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Eternal, and a royal diadem in the hand of of God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, which is what we've been up till now. Where is their God? Why doesn't God answer them? Why are they out there saying they're the people of God and ain't nothing happening? No more call forsaken. That's one of our names that will be changed. Neither shall your land anymore be termed desolate. Nobody around. All these people are going to come. But you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Eternal delighted in you, and your land shall be married. 
For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So he's, he's still talking about now, this age. Verse 6 shows that. I have set watchmen upon your walls, Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night. You that make the mention of the eternal, keep not silence. Give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So this isn't the millennium yet. This is when the watchmen are still telling you. I'm doing my level best right now to help us see what we need to do to make all these promises come true. What he's looking for in a bride. And he tells us what he'll do and he tells us what we need to do. Uh, let's go over to Revelation 19 here. Revelation 19. And verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come... And his wife has made herself ready. And so she's been preparing. She's been getting herself ready, okay? We just went over that. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So she's been preparing herself. She has made herself ready. She's done her part. But she was granted fine linen, righteousness. So we work hand in hand with Christ to get properly dressed for the wedding. Given, granted, helped. I think I'll save the, the end of Revelation for a little bit later on. So we're about done for tonight. But all of these scriptures show us that this whole thing is about Christ and His bride. Parable of the kingdom and everything. And I want to go back now to the Song of Songs with this background. It's been quite a bit of background, but I'm leading up to something. And uh, it is imperative and important totally that we grasp what Christ truly wants of us and how he wants the relationship to be. So we've read some things about how we are to comply, how what attitude we're to have, husband and wife, uh, on earth as well as between him. We've gone through a lot of scriptures, but now I want to take it a step further. So we'll do that tomorrow evening. <coughs>